welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where Here's Frank, Scott, Chris, and Adam. All right, welcome back, everybody. Fantasy Baseball today here on a Monday, June 1st. Where did the time go? It's June already. Frank Stanfield here alongside Chris Towers and Scott White. How was your weekend, guys? Fine. It was fine. Mm. How was yours? <laughs> real, <laughs> real interesting weekends we got going on. <laughs> uh, well, I, yeah. I just, yeah, I think, I think Frank was looking for a little more, uh, <laughs> a little more enthusiasm from, uh, <laughs> From Scott White there, and he, he couldn't quite uh, he couldn't quite provide it. So I'll step up. I had a pretty boring weekend too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm currently fun. in the process of moving, so that's always fun. Good times there. Oh, um, yeah, not really far from where I live now, but yeah, that's basically all I've got going on. Um, obviously, there are definitely some crazy things going on just in general around the world, around the country. So hopefully, you know, we can offer a distraction, some entertainment throughout this time for you guys. Today on the show, I want to focus on solidifying our strategy when it comes to pitchers in a shortened season. I keep getting questions on Twitter, like how are you approaching pitching uh, this season, if there is a season, and I really just had to sit down and think about it. So I wanted to talk about some of the things that I found today and what I think might happen. I have some hypotheses that we could talk about here. I will also take a look at Strikeout percentage for hitters and evaluate a Royals prospect. Daniel Lynch, let's start out with this first and foremost. What has changed most for you when it comes to pitchers this season, Scott? The thing that has changed the most is I de-emphasizing volume, I guess, specifically uh, among the, the pitchers who I was including in that group of 35 you know, I, I might need to reconsider who's in the 35, who's out of the 35, maybe even make it a bigger number than 35 because I've moved guys like Jesus Lazardo and Julio Arias ahead of guys like Lance Lynn and Zach Wheeler, uh, guys who I feel like were being pushed up mainly because you could count on them to take to, to handle a big workload over a full season and guys who were being pushed down mainly because you couldn't. You know, they... if if that latter group, you trust them to be more effective uh, on a start-by-start basis, they probably need to move ahead. Now, there's still the issue of how deep into games these guys are going to pitch, which is you know, probably even a bigger factor than how many total innings they were going to pitch. But I think especially early in the season, everybody's going to be limited to a degree, maybe for the first two, three, four turns, because spring... You know, the second spring is going to be so abbreviated. Guys aren't going to have a chance to stretch out fully. Uh, but more than anything, we can't. I can't afford a situation in what could be a three or four month season. I can't afford a situation where um, a Lance Lynn. I'm going to have to suffer through like a 5.50 ERA for six weeks before turning the page because six weeks is such a larger percentage of the season. So I want to make sure. You know, in the case of a guy like Luzardo, I'm actually more confident he's going to be effective with the innings he gets. So that's the biggest change for me. Chris, would you agree with that sentiment just in terms of 
pushing some of those maybe per inning producers or per start producers up the board a little bit. And, you know, maybe maybe even on the higher end, devaluing someone like Zach Greinke, who is largely dependent on his volume and the fact that he is as dependable as he is year in and year out. No, I, I actually, you know, I, I think you could kind of go the other way there when you're talking about the, the desire to avoid a bad start uh, or just bad stretches in general. I think the consistency of someone like Zach Greinke uh, actually benefits him. He's not someone who's going to need to be babied early on this season. He's not someone who's going to, uh, you know, need to adjust to a different schedule. I would assume, you know, given his age, given how successful he is, obviously it is a different schedule, but that's true for everyone. Um, and I would say the guys who are proven reliable starters who can go deep into games, especially, uh, I think they're more likely to get off to that good start you're hoping for, but really we don't know. Like that's not an exciting answer, but it's the true one. And I think it is our duty and our obligation to give our listeners uh, truthful, honest answers. And the truth is we're living in a totally unprecedented situation when it comes to Major League Baseball. If and when it comes back, we have no, we really don't have any possible analog for this. The closest is 1995, but they were able to figure that out you know, I think during spring training and they ultimately delayed the season by a couple of weeks and teams were able to carry a couple extra arms, but for the most part, you know, it was more like a normal season than this one will be. And then you just have to take into account how different uh, the landscape is at this point. You know, uh, uh, I think it was last week or maybe the week before I started looking at some pitchers from 1995 who were making their debuts that season and how they were handled. And uh, I can't remember who the pitcher Ismael was. Valdez. Ismael Valdez. Yes. Yeah. Uh, who finished like third in rookie of the year voting that year. And he had thrown like 115, 120 pitches in starts by May. Yeah. There's just no way that's going to happen with anyone. Like Max Scherzer might not throw 115 or 120 pitches this season. I'm not sure he did it all last season. Um, so that's the tough thing is when it comes to pitching, especially it feels like this is entirely uncharted territory that I don't, which is to say, I don't know how much you should change your approach. Yeah. So you're, yeah, that's why I, I didn't, I didn't even bother with the high end guys. Uh, it's, it's mostly the, the fringes of the, that top 35 group. I always talk about where I decided to make some adjustments Although Zach Granke, it's interesting you bring him up specifically because he's kind of become notorious for for coming into spring training, throwing like low 80s and saying, I don't know what's going on and everybody freaking out. And then he ends up having another Zach Granke season. Right. But we're, we're smart enough at this point to know that we shouldn't freak out anymore. Like, look, he's going to he's going <laughs> to fall off at some point. But yeah, I, I just that, wonder if if, you know him coming throwing nowhere near what he needs to throw is but last year that, having a certain number of starts to get ready last year that but, wasn't you know. the issue last year he he was throwing high 80s in his first spring start i remember that being a story and it really 
Like neither one should be a story at this point. It's Zach Greinke. Yeah. Maybe he drafts himself in fantasy baseball every year and he does that purposely so that he can he lower his ADP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's like insider trading, <laughs> fantasy baseball edition with Zach Greinke. To your initial point, Chris, uh, and I'll talk about this a little bit later on, I think one of the things that I'm going to try and do is avoid volatility. And what I mean by that is in a shortened season, if you have those starting pitchers who typically you don't know what to expect from on a game-to-game basis where they can go out and throw seven shutout innings or they can go out and throw four innings and allow five earned runs, I want to avoid those starting pitchers more because in a shortened season, they don't have as much time to, for those numbers to normalize. So obviously, I bring up the name a ton, but Trevor Bauer, 13 starts of four earned runs or more last year. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, 11 of those starts. Robbie Ray, 10 of those starts. I think names like that, where they're more volatile than the average starting pitcher, I'm going to be avoiding. I just... One of the things I struggle with is to a certain extent that kind of describes every pitcher outside of like the top four rounds, you know, like guys who are consistent and consistently good really, because there are pitchers who are very consistent uh, and we don't want them on our fantasy teams, Uh, but guys who are consistently good, they're aces. And so like in theory, I get that. You know, Trevor Bauer was inconsistent last year. I just don't know if inconsistency is predictive as well. So, yeah, but you have in your mind, I'm sure, pitchers who you you trust to actually be good more than others. Like, I, I know for me, Blake yeah. Snell is probably a no. Trevor Bauer is a no. I mentioned Lance Lynn and Zach Wheeler. But is that any different than how you would approach a normal season? Yeah. Yeah, because... But, well, I mean, it gets to what I was talking about, that one of the variables has been removed here now, and that's volume. Volume's yeah. been removed. And so pitchers who you elevate because of volume, even though maybe you, you don't trust them on the same level of others you rank similarly, get pushed down. So like a Chris Paddock uh, relative to a Trevor Bauer... There's probably a bigger gap there now. Maybe. I, I don't know. Um, like that volume gap still exists. And if anything, a guy like Trevor Bauer, another guy who can throw 115 pitches in a start, you know, and probably doesn't need much time at all in spring training to get ramped back up, he might have an even greater volume edge on the guys who aren't proven, you know? Yeah. It, it's maybe hard he, to say. You're right. Yeah, like the, You're right. It's there, hard to say. There's factors both ways. Like Jesus Lazardo, it wouldn't shock me if he didn't throw 90 pitches in, in April in a start. And I just, so he I might just, be really good for those five innings he pitches. Yeah. I was about to say, it also wouldn't surprise me if he finishes the season with a sub three ERA, but just never goes more than five innings. Yeah, it, it, w- it wouldn't surprise me if that happens. It wouldn't shock me if he finished the season with a, uh, an, a, an above four ERA, too. He's unproven. I would say the both of those. If he had an ERA over four and if he never, ever went six innings, both of those would surprise me for Luzardo. Uh, I do. Obviously, you can count on Bauer pitching deeper into games than Luzardo just in a in a general sense. But I keep thinking back to the way last season started, how many pitchers were just terrible in April or, you know, maybe even beyond that, maybe some into May. 
I've made a list of all of them at one point. I, I don't have that handy, but it was, um, you know, Corey Kluber was one of them. Obviously, he got hurt. Carrasco was one of them. Chris Sale was one of them, obviously. Aaron Nola, Flaherty, Dar- like just a ton of really good pitchers were just terrible at the start of last season. And for a lot of them, it's easy to forget because over the course of six months, their numbers were more or less able to normalize, but there's not going to be as much time to normalize. Like Frank was saying, and some of those we couldn't really predict. No, Well, I guess sale did have a little bit of an elbow thing going into last season, but like Kluber, nobody would have seen that coming him struggling so much at the start of last season. Uh, But for the ones where you do have reason to have concern, I think that concern is amplified. And I think Bauer fits that description as well as some of the others I've mentioned, Lance Lynn, Madison Bumgarner. I haven't mentioned him yet. You know, if for for as much as you can predict that sort of thing, I don't I don't think it hurts to 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 follow through on that instinct. We'll talk more about some of those high end starting pitchers a little bit later on. We'll get back to this conversation. I want to jump into our email of the day. This one comes from Tyler. asks How much does the strikeout percentage for players uh, hitters? specifically scare you as a fantasy owner looking at 2019 strikeout percentage inside the top 10 there are players like Ryan McMahon, Eugenio Suarez, Fran Mil Reyes, Luke Voigt, Javier Baez, Juan Moncada, Chris Davis. Are these players you stay away from or do you only draft if they fall from their ADP or are these players that you draft and just take the good with the bad? So I think there are oh, sorry no, no, it's all right. I mean, I was going to say, let's answer the, the first question. Uh, let's answer this question first. Among the top 15 hitters, I looked at this in head-to-head points leagues, uh, five of them had a K percentage of at least 20%. Only two had a K percentage over 25%. That was Ronald Acuna and Pete Alonso. Uh, among and that the, makes sense. Yeah. There's a double penalty in points leagues. for Because yeah. basically the thing with strikeouts is they're not that much different than a regular out like you can't move a runner over you can't get a sack fly but those those events are so rare that from a fantasy perspective they don't really matter a strikeout the problem with a strikeout is it's just a missed opportunity to to create something um so really what it comes down to in in a points league is it lowers volume because it takes that plate appearance away and you get the penalty so i think in points leagues you should definitely watch out for strikeout uh, high strikeout rate guys in roto leagues. The other thing I would say is the hitters who are good in spite of a high strikeout rate, like to, to survive as a fantasy viable player with a high strikeout rate, you have to be really good and you have to do things that help. And so, you know, you look at like Luke Voigt, seventh in strikeout rate last season, or Eugenio Suarez fifth among qualified hitters. Well, he hit 49 home runs, so you don't really care that he struck out 28% of the time. Um, so I, I just think that's that's kind of our – it's already baked into their profile. In Eugenio Suarez's case, it's a question of whether he can be an elite power hitter again while striking out 28% of the time. But if he can be, the strikeout rate doesn't really matter. Yeah, among uh, among the top 15 hitters in Roto – uh, seven had a K percentage of at least 20%, three over 25%. Again, Ronald Acuna, Pete Alonso, 
uh, Trevor Story, Scott. I mean, those are all names where, just going back to what Chris said, they do things that are extraordinary. It's, you know, Ronald Acuna, uh, 40-40. Pete Alonzo, over 50 home runs. Trevor Story, you know, 35 homers. Course field is also yeah. a big part of it. 35 homers and, you know, 15 to 20 steals. So it's like these are players that make things happen despite the strikeouts, Scott. Yes. We talk about we talk about strikeout rate a lot when we're evaluating hitters, particularly unproven ones. And so I I I would say it's the single biggest problem a hitter can have. It's it's the biggest blight on a hitter, the biggest thing that could potentially keep him from being successful. But there, of course ways to overcome it and for ones who are more proven now like like a trevor story uh you know we we know not to worry about it before but we don't have to worry about it anymore but the things that have been proven to overcome a high strikeout rate are hitting the ball exceptionally hard i mean aaron judge just strikes out at a historically high rate but he also makes historically hard contact so it, it kind of cancels each other out uh, and then having the sort of batted ball profile that lends itself to a high BABIP is another way a hitter can overcome a high strikeout rate. So those are those are the things we look at when we're deciding whether a strikeout rate is really going to be something that holds a hitter back. But just in, in kind of a general player evaluation sense, it is something that concerns me. For the specific players you mentioned, you know, we've already factored into the analysis and it's not, it's not something we think is going to, to uh, destroy them, obviously, but you know, in some of those cases, obviously it does limit their batting average potential. Yeah. And, and uh, I think there's a specific name that uh, Tyler mentioned that really does stand out to me. And that is Ryan McMahon, because you look at a. Eugenio Suarez, he hit 49 homers last year. Framo Reyes certainly has 40 homer potential. He hit 37. Uh, Luke Voigt got hurt, but he was on nearly a 35 homer pace before the injury. Javi Baez, Yohan Makata, you know, might have the best Babbitt skill set in Major League history. Uh, I believe he has the highest Babbitt for anyone with at least as many plate appearances as he has. He's been above like 340 each of his uh, three partial seasons. And then Chris Davis was a 45 homer guy. And so that's where I look at someone like Ryan McMahon. And that's why I'm so pessimistic about him because he doesn't have uh, necessarily those elite skills. He does hit the ball pretty hard, uh, 90% percentile in exit velocity, 91st in hard hit, but 39th percentile in XWOBA, 25th percentile in XBA. Um, I don't know if he's got the juice to make up for the strikeout rate. And that's really where it comes in is he's got a, a guy like him, a guy like God, Danny, Danny Santana, uh, who did have elite batted ball outcomes last season. The question is whether they can have those elite batted ball outcomes to make up for the strikeout rate. We know Aaron judge, Yohan Makata, those guys can. You know, when he's, when you said, I don't know if he has the juice. It reminded me, have you ever seen the movie Encino Man? Like Brendan yes. Fraser way back it's in the day. It's been a while, but yeah, definitely. The guy, he, so uh, he starts just doing like the 7-Eleven Slurpee, like right, like right over his mouth. And the guy's like, mm-hmm. no wheezing the juice, no wheezing the juice. <laughs> That's what I thought of when he did that. I of the Lizzo song. The Lizzo song? You know that one? Lizzo? No, I know who Lizzo is. I just, I don't she really pay close juice. attention. Oh, juice. Good song. 
There you go. The second part of Tyler's question, is there another advanced stat that you recommend looking at to see if there's room for improvement uh, to help predict positive production? I feel like... <laughs> yeah, we kind of covered it, didn't we? Yeah, it's BABIP, hard hit rate. I mean, batted ball data in general. One thing I will say, um, you know, I've written about Kevin Biggio a lot this season, and he's another guy who uh, has a pretty scary batting average profile because he strikes out a lot. And I've made the comparison to you on Mankata, and both of those guys, what I what I saw in both of them is just they never swung. And it wasn't because, like Alex Bregman, they had elite plate discipline. I think Kevin Biggio probably has better than Moncada. Uh, and so the problem with both having these really high strikeout rates was they just took too many hittable pitches. And the biggest thing that Yohan Moncada improved on last season was being more aggressive swinging at pitches earlier in the count because you know one of the things you see a lot of the high strikeout guys walk a lot and you see a lot of the high walk guys strike out a lot there's a correlation between those two things because the more pit, uh, pitches you see in a given at bat the the higher your chance of striking out is and so you know for a player like Yohan Moncada coming into last year he needed to be more aggressive to get out of those you know, three, two counts where he, you know, I think he struck out swinging more than anybody in baseball in 28 or struck out looking more than anyone in baseball. And so that's another thing where you can kind of get a little more granular and look at, you know, how often is a guy swinging at pitches in the zone or how often is a guy swinging at pitches out of the zone? And you can say, you know, Jorge Alfaro, I think has the highest rate on both in and out of zone pitches. So it's really hard to see where he's going to improve. He just kind of swings at everything. He's always going to strike out a lot as a result. Um, but if you can identify someone who makes a high amount of contact but doesn't swing enough, you know, that's one place that you can kind of like David Fletcher had the highest contact rate in baseball, only swung 36% of the time. That's a guy who, if he starts swinging more, he could probably be helpful in batting average. Kevin Biggio, B. Aggressive. Be, be yeah. aggressive. Uh, there, there are two stats I focus on for this, and that's average exit velocity, which is you know how hard they hit it. And I look at line drive rate. That, I think, has the best correlation to a high BABIP. Um, Alex Chamberlain has done some work on average uh, launch angle, but like the the how little variability the there is in the launch yeah. angle, the yeah. tightness of the launch angle. Yeah, that's something I've and, talked and a lot about with Reese Hoskins. He's talked about that correlating with a high Babbitt, but that's not as easy to find. And I, I feel like the leaderboard for that looks very similar to the line drive leaderboard. So I think line drive rate, which you can find on every player's page on fan graphs, is probably the, the easy way to go. The problem is it's very unpredictable from year to year. That's what's tough with line drive rate. Some news and notes. The MLB Players Association responds with their proposal. This is a big week, guys. I mean, if they don't get something done this week, it's going to be hard to imagine a season starting in early July. It doesn't mean that a, if they don't get a deal done this week, we won't have baseball. It just means we probably won't have it for the start date that they originally said. It it won't be July. Then it, it could be the middle of July, maybe the end of July. So... Uh, just keep that in mind. 114 games is what the Players Association proposed from June 30th through October 31st. So originally, the owners wanted to pay them uh, 51% of their salary in 82 games, or that's 
that was what was rumored. Um, and then now the players want basically 70% of their salary, which would be this 114 games. Uh, two years of expanded playoffs. This is something that would be good for the owners because it increases their likelihood to make the postseason and, of course, make more money. Um, $100 million in total deferred money and an opt-out for all players who say they don't want to play if they have underlying health conditions or it's deemed not safe for them to play. Uh, this is the latest, and of course, the owners are already balking at it. So, we'll I, see what happens. There's there's one other detail that I think is important, and that was that the players um, added that if the postseason was canceled, because it it sounds like the postseason is kind of the whole ball game for for the owners. Mm-hmm. If the postseason is canceled, they've agreed to defer their payment for two years. So basically, if that happens, player the the owners could push their salary over the next two seasons, which I think is a big thing. Ultimately, I feel like the answer is play 100 games starting July 1st, pay for 82 games, and that would probably be the best solution to this, is my thought. It, it would mean players are playing for free for 18 games, but you know it gets them the money that they, were, that they believe they were promised to start with at least. I, the biggest, my biggest takeaway from this is um, just that why you can't get atta- too attached to any ideas you're hearing thrown out there because the players counter an extra month's worth of games. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a big difference. You're talking about a three-month season versus a four-month season. Um, you know, that, that changes your assessment of a lot of things. And I'm not sure it's going to end up either one of those might be something in the middle, but, uh, you know, it's really hard to move forward until we know what it is we're dealing with. And there, there isn't a lot that we actually know of everything that's been thrown out there. Like, I don't know. Everybody's treating it like a foregone conclusion. There will be universal DH. I don't. I don't know that we can even be totally sure of that. There's been reporting that the players are pretty much on board with that. That they're. Well, they, I'm sure the players would be. I, that that would be more of an owner hangout, right? I think the owners have already approved that proposal. Okay. Um. So yeah, I, I think. I don't know what I was going to say. It's okay. <laughs> the, the other. <laughs> what, reason- what I was going to say is just that. The first proposal from both the owners and now the players, uh, it's more for the public than for the other side. They're both trying to establish the terms of debate in the public's eyes, and then they'll now they'll start negotiating is, I think, the, the key thing to take away there. Chris, I sure hope you're right, man. The other news item that I noticed, Griffin Canning recently resumed throwing live batting practice and has advanced to the 55 pitch mark in those sessions, according to Maria Torres of the Los Angeles Times. Remember, he was diagnosed with a, I believe it was a flexor strain back in February, um, and we didn't know if he was going to need Tommy John, and it sounds like he's not going to have it, and he's just going to try and work through it and rehab. His ADP back in January was 224. Uh, before he got hurt. That's according to the NFBC. He was going just ahead of Mitch Keller and Jose Urquidy. So there were people excited about Griffin Canning. First eight starts last yeah. season, a 3.65 ERA and a 0.99 whip. Uh, his next nine starts, 5.48 ERA with a 1.43 whip. The swinging strike rate uh, went down a bunch. More walks, more home runs. 
Scott, I'm kind of intrigued by Griffin Canning. I mean, if he can stay healthy, that is. The slider, I think, is absolutely legit. He, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Jack Flaherty. I was very excited about him. He was on my initial breakouts list. He was one of three pitchers in addition to uh, at the end of last year. Max Fried was one. I can't remember who the other one was. But there were three guys I pinpointed as taking guys who could take a big leap forward the following year. And Canning was one of them because the swinging strike rate is elite. But, you know, what he actually got diagnosed with was chronic changes in his ulnar collateral ligament, which is, of course, the one that gets repaired in Tommy John surgery. Uh, and the Angels have a history of trying to come up with these workarounds for Tommy John surgery. They did it with Garrett Richards. They did it with Shohei Otani. Andrew Heaney. Andrew Heaney. Yeah. I think like there was they, another guy too. <laughs> they keep doing this and it keeps yeah. inevitably leading to Tommy John surgery anyway. And I mean, um, Garrett Richards, especially he lost a big part of his prime because of it. So I'm, yeah. I'm just not trusting that, you know, anytime you're talking about a UCL injury and it doesn't in, it hasn't led to Tommy John surgery yet. You can feel pretty confident. It eventually will. And given the Angels' history, I'm not sure I can count on Griffin Canning to really make it through any point of the season. And it's hard to say whether he'll be totally effective, even if he can't pitch. So I'm not, I'm not really upgrading him based yeah. on the layoff like I am for a lot of injured players. It's weird because the, the times that the Angels did that in the past, I think we're all like in mid-season. And so I think the logic with Heaney, Richards, and uh, and Otani was if he has Tommy John surgery now or if he has Tommy John surgery in October, he's going to miss all of next season anyway. So we might as well see if we can make something work. Uh, Cannings was different, and that, that does make me think that maybe the risk of Tommy John surgery is a little lower for him than the other two guys because the other, the other three guys – you know, it was like platelet-rich plasma injections and, uh, you know, more minor attempts to to kind of stave it off and ultimately it didn't work. Uh, but Canning, like if he has Tommy John surgery now, he's going to lose a significant chunk of 2021 as well. So that does make me think maybe it's a little less serious than the other situations they dealt with. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we will try and form some kind of opinion on drafting pitchers. We talked about this a little bit. We'll get back into it. We'll do that here on Fantasy Baseball Today. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. Homes.com offers in-depth neighborhood guides with detailed video overviews, comprehensive narratives, and unbiased information from a multitude of sources. You thought we go in-depth with player analysis on Fantasy Baseball today? You haven't seen anything yet. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood complete with a video guide. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. When looking at local schools, they offer test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. 
Worn by players like Michael Harris to meet the demand of elite ball players, the New Balance Fuel Cell 4040 V7 is a versatile option. The 4040 V7 is built for the athlete who needs responsiveness and ability to cut and run at their full speed. The model features a fuel cell foam underfoot and a synthetic and mesh upper to provide breathability, comfort, and a snug fit as you round the bases. The fuel cell midsole features nitrogen-infused foam specifically designed to propel athletes forward. Learn more about the 4040 at newbalance.com. Alrighty, we're back here on Fantasy Baseball today trying to form that opinion on how, how to draft pitchers in a shortened season. There's going to be a shortened season. We don't know exactly how many games are going to be played. Uh, but I tweeted about this a little bit last week, and I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on my findings and whether or not there's anything actually here. Basically, random things are going to happen. They have happen every single season, regardless of how long. They're going to be more likely to happen in an even shorter season. You typically see randomness in the first half of seasons highlighted by... Uh, breakouts, pitchers who have made some sort of adjustment. And my thinking with this is hitters who are seeing pitchers do something different that they haven't seen before. And what I mean by that is uh, they change their positioning on the mound. They uh, mechanical adjustment. They add a pitch. They change up their pitch mix, things like that. Um, Hitters haven't seen that from that pitcher before. And my thinking is that in the first half of seasons, hitters just don't have enough time to adjust or to adapt to what they're seeing. Uh, And eventually, the cream usually rises to the top, and elite pitchers separate themselves the further that the season goes along. The problem is, in an 80-game season, in a 100-game season, will there be enough time for those elite starting pitchers, if they get off to a slow start, to pull away and for those numbers to normalize? And that's something we spoke about a little bit earlier. So ultimately, what I'm thinking is, should we devalue elite starting pitchers originally you know, we did mock drafts two months ago. I'm willing to take a starting pitcher in the first round, uh, a starting pitcher in the second round. Sometimes I'll double down on the first two rounds. Now I'm thinking with more randomness, I should buy into those breakout pitchers and the pitchers that we heard were making adjustments in the spring and throwing new pitches. Guys like Tyler Glass now who apparently were throwing a new splitter and Zach Gallen we expect to be a breakout. Moving those guys up the board, devaluing the elite starting pitchers and living in the mid-tier more. So what do you mean by mid-tier? You mean you mean Gallen, you mean Glass now, or do you mean lower than that? No, I mean that's a fair range, but I was thinking even higher than that. Like normally I would be okay taking a pitcher in the first two rounds. Now I don't okay. take my first pitcher until the third or the fourth round. Okay. And maybe only getting, okay. you know, two of my top 20 guys that are in my 10 to 20 range and then really loading up on more of those Gallons, Lazardo, uh, maybe even a glass now. You know, other names that just came to mind for me, Matthew Boyd is someone that I expected to be a breakout. He's someone that I can move up even more now. Pirates pitchers because we expect them to make an adjustment with the new pitching coach. Um, you well, say see, now Kikuchi. You're getting, now, you're, now you're crossing into a pretty low-end range when you talk about the Pirates pitchers. Yep. I'm just trying to hammer down what you're talking about settling. Because it sounds like you're talking about settling for less at starting pitcher, and i just trying to hammer down exactly what you mean. Yeah, so I looked at data from the past three seasons, basically. The first, first about 80 games of each season and then the second 80 games of each season. And... I'll start. I'll just tell you some of the things that I found back in like 2017, for example. Um, on June 30th, these 11 mostly random starting pitchers 
had a sub 3.50 ERA. Jason Vargas, Lance McCullers, Gio Gonzalez, Chase Anderson, Mike Leake, Robbie Ray, Irvin Santana, Ivan Nova, Luis Severino, Jimmy Nelson, Dan Straley. With the exception of Lance McCullers, each one of those pitchers was drafted outside the top 200 in ADP. Of those 11, nine of them either made a change in pitch mix or just broke out. Really, it was just McCullers because it was his age 23 season. Everyone else made a change to their pitch mix. Robbie Ray threw his curveball 16% more than ever before. Uh, that was the season, the offseason, where Severino worked with Pedro Martinez on his changeup. Jimmy Nelson lowered his fastball usage. Basically, the point that I'm making is elite pitchers separate themselves the further that the season goes along. If we only have 80 or 100 games, you're going to have more random things happen in that shortened season. And what I'm thinking is the players who benefit the most from those random things are pitchers who break out because that's what's what we're expecting. They're just at that breakout age or guys that have made a change to their pitch mix because hitters don't have enough time to adjust. If that makes sense. I'm not nearly confident in my nearly comp- confident enough in my ability to peg the breakout pitcher, I guess is what I would say to that. I certainly have some names in mind and I, I think my reasoning is as sound as it can get for it, but I think I think that gets confirmed or denied over the course of the season, like you're saying, and some some pitchers who I don't see coming end up being among the bigger breakouts too, like a Lance Lynn, for instance, a Frankie Montas. I, I had no reason to suspect either of them were on the verge of breaking out until the breakout was playing out. And so to put all my eggs in that basket, my ability to predict a breakout, I think is I think is dangerous. I think it's a low probability play. I think it's true that there is going to be more randomness in a short season and uh it's true that that you're going to be less confident in your pitcher picks because of that, but I think you still need to trust in what you believe the scarcities are and I think you need to and, and I think it's high in starting pitchers, real difference makers at that position. And I think you just have to accept that the outcomes of your season are going to be more random and maybe not, you know, that's not, that's not just giving in and, and being comfortable with losing, but just acknowledging the, the facts on the ground. Like, yeah, it's going to be shorter. More random things are going to happen. You're going to have to make decisions quicker with less information and potentially make a wrong decision because of that. But, you know, if you want to play fantasy baseball this year, that's just something you're going to have to be comfortable with. So I'm, I'm not, you know, I mean, I guess that's where I stand with it. And that might be the answer, Chris. I mean, if that's your answer too, I don't have a problem with it. It might just be, we can't predict these things and uh, that we should focus more on, on the scarcity, which again, I mean, that's why elite pitchers go where they do because they are scarce commodities, obviously. But do you think there's anything here, Chris, where last year, you know, Scott mentioned it earlier that a lot of elite starting pitchers got off to slow starts. And we saw more, like the, Mike Miner was a breakout in the first half. Frankie Montas, uh, Lucas Giolito, Jake Odorizzi, Yanni Chirinos, uh, Spencer Turnbull was had like a two five three ERA in the first three months of the season. But I guess my point is, how much faith do you have in your ability to identify some of those players? Because, I mean, really, that's a lot of what we do the entire offseason, no? It's trying to identify the players who are going to break out. So it's basically just putting more trust in those things. Yeah, one thing, the thing, this 
sort of has some characteristics of the hot hand or uh, not the hot hand. What's the, what's the argument Scott or Adam and I always have about uh, like the players who are due, the gambler's fallacy is basically, uh, I think that's the, that's the term for it. Basically a player has been on a hot streak. So he's due for a cold streak or players on a cold streak. He's due for a hot streak. This sort of covers kind of the same territory. And, And my position on that is always, uh, if a player's on a cold streak, he is no more or less likely to go on a hot streak than a than for the cold streak to continue. I don't know if that's necessarily like that doesn't apply in all cases. Sometimes guys are playing hurt. Sometimes guys are have a, an adjustment to make. But you know, assuming talent and ability stay equal, and so like I don't know if players making an adjustment are more likely to start the season well uh, than start the season poorly. Cause you know, a lot of players make adjustments and, you know, so in 2017, it was what nine of 11 had either a significant pitch mix uh, change or yeah. eight of 11, right? Yeah, it was nine, nine of 11. And so I guess my question would be how many pitchers made a pitch mix change overall, which and I do not have. <laughs> how many. Yeah. And no. And, and that's, that's, that's okay. Um, I'm also, I just looked up, I basically just took every split month for the season for every, for every pitcher. And I'm just kind of looking at like what the standard deviation was between their ERA from, for each month. And there's not really a good answer for what kind of pitcher was more or less reliable last season. Like the pitchers who had the smallest, uh, difference in their ERA from month to month were Yusei Kikuchi, Jose Arana, Dylan Bundy. So, so that's basically, three, they, they were all three bad, bad pitchers all the time. <laughs> and then, but also Clayton Kershaw, Shane Bieber, Garrett Cole, uh, Zach Greinke, Blake Snell. Like there were some pitchers who were just consistently good all the time. And there were some pitchers who were consistently bad all the time. And I, I don't know if there's anything, and then you look at the the others, the the least consistent pitchers last season on a month by month basis: Mike Fultonevich, Ryan Yarbrough, Joe Musgrove, Trevor Bauer, Stephen Matz, Masahiro Tanaka, Spencer Turnbull. Like that generally does seem like a list of worse pitchers. Um, and so maybe the the case is that you know the good pitchers are going to be more predictable and and more more consistent over the course of a year, which also makes perfect sense. Yeah. What I, one thing I found that's not, not related to this exact point, but I think it's worth bringing into this discussion is I've seen a lot of fantasy analysts talk about how you need to devalue pitchers for this shortened season. And, uh, you know, making that kind of uh, one of the major talking points, but they're not, it doesn't seem like they're putting their money where their mouth is because we've had, we've been doing mock drafts basically every week since the shutdown, maybe missed a week here or there, but basically every week we've done a mock draft and the approach to starting pitching other than what I talked about at the top, maybe moving Lazardo up, Gallon up guys like Lance Lynn down. It hasn't changed. People are going as aggressively after starting pitching as ever. And then when I looked at the way ADP has changed on NFBC guys who uh, you know, 
they're, you know, high stakes playing, basically, guys who have a lot of money riding on it. It's the same thing. The guys who are falling in ADP since the shutdown began, they're not, they're not like pitchers as a whole. There are a few scattered ones, uh, but the same sort of ones I'm talking about. So it seems like for all the talk you're hearing about it, and maybe it's just because there needs to be something to talk about, fantasy baseball related if your job is to talk about fantasy baseball so this is settled on in as being a talking point uh for all that talk it doesn't seem like a whole lot is changing in the way people who know what they're talking about are actually approaching the draft i will add that i've participated in a few of those mock drafts since then and this is really something that i've just kind of come to my own over the past week or so so i think you know if a season gets announced and we start drafting again and you know as we get closer to the start of the season I actually will you know do what you said Scott and and put my money where my mouth is and I don't think that I'm going to be as aggressive on starting pitching in the first two rounds as I was before we did a mock draft earlier fourth overall pick where I took Jacob deGrom and it, you guys kind of found it surprising but originally I was all in on on you know those high end starting pitchers but I think based on this, I'm more likely to wait maybe until the third or fourth round for a starting pitcher and pull more of those who I consider breakout starting pitchers up the board. And I feel more comfortable with those as like my SP3, SP4, the Matthew Boyds, the Jesus Lozardos, the Zach Gallons of the world. Yeah, and I think that's fine. It's just when you get below the range that I really start to worry. I actually haven't, for as much as I've talked about investing heavily in pitching this year, I, I rarely spend my first two picks on them. I might spend my second pick on it depending on who's there, but usually I go hitter hitter to start out because I think that's the class of hitters that really distinguishes itself from the rest of the hitting crop. And then I go very heavy on pitcher in rounds three through seven, you know, so I'm not, you know, that's why in, instead of general terms, I was trying to get more specifically what range you're talking about it because I'm not sure I disagree with you passing up a Cole or a Verlander or a Scherzer necessarily. I've kind of been doing that all along. Though I may dis, you know, the the reasoning behind it may be different. We met, we mentioned this when we talked about the winners and losers when you know the proposals were thrown out there with um, in terms of scheduling. You know, the AL Central will face the NL Central, and I just wanted to reiterate, you know, in a shortened season. I do want to target some of those AL Central starting pitchers just because, you know, the ones that are going to face the Tigers consistently, the Royals consistently, they'll also face the Pirates in the opposite division. So, you know, the Twins stand out, the Indians, uh, Lucas Giolito with the White Sox, and even some of those, uh, you know, White Sox prospects, like the Kopex that we, you know, expect to be part of the team at some point. I'm just, I'm, I'm pushing those guys slightly up as well in the AL Central. Yeah, so Kopech and who else did you mention? Uh, just the Indians guys, but I mean Bieber, you're okay, still gonna have yeah. to use a second round pick. Clev, you might get in the third. Uh, Savali the twins, was the Twins, especially Maeda and Odorizzi. Yeah, yeah, yeah Maeda, that's like the one good lineup in the AL Central, and they yeah, Maeda, Maeda especially. Um, I don't think he's been properly readjusted after leaving the the Dodgers either. Um, yeah, he's really good. I agree with that 100%. And even Jose Barrios, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he was he was really good for, you know, a large portion of last season too. And then I know he had like his final two months, he kind of like burned out a little bit. But, I mean, he's another one. His first 20 starts last year, he had a 2.80 ERA. 
and great in a points league. He was uh, 10th among starting pitchers with 21 quality starts. So maybe even Berrios is someone we could see uh, finally put it together in this shortened season. We'll save the prospect evaluation on Daniel Lynch. We'll do that tomorrow. Wanted to get to some questions here. Fantasy baseball at CBSI.com. Is there anything else you guys wanted to add just on the shortened season before we move on? I would just say don't overreact. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm... That's how I would sum it up. Like, I, I just... Given... I don't know. There... You asked me to, to... If there was anything quick I wanted to say, so I'll try to keep it quick. But I think you can look at it two ways. On the one hand, like, first of all, the thing we know is that we do not know anything, really, about what the impact of the shortened season is going to be. We can make conjectures and we can do research and look at historical trends, but this is so different than anything we've ever seen that you can't really just say, well, these are the guys who've been good in August or April consistently. These are the guys who've been slow starters and fast starters because we just don't know what the impact of, a, of starting the season and then stopping it and then trying to start it again is going to be. Uh, I think we can assume there will be more injuries is one thing that I will say I'm fairly confident in. Um, so you can gain an edge by reacting and trying to find a different strategy. Uh, I think you can also really steer yourself wrong. So ultimately we don't know is my answer. Fantasy baseball at CBSI.com. Continue to send in your questions. Uh, this one actually came from oddly enough, not a fantasy baseball today, Apple podcast review, a fantasy football today, Apple podcast review, from Bo 3 Buddy, you left your review in the wrong spot. Put it on Fantasy Football Today, so make sure you continue to send in those uh, your five-star Apple Podcast ratings and reviews for Fantasy Baseball Today. Drop in a prospect you want us to evaluate or send us a question there, and we'll be sure to get to it. Hey, guys, love the podcast. Could we cover some of the strategies and what makes a good lineup in a head-to-head categories league? I know you typically talk about Roto and points, but of course, our commish and league is not. We use Yahoo, and our setup uh, is one catcher, one infield, one of each infield position, three outfielders, two utility spots, uh, two starting pitchers, two relief pitchers, four just pitchers in general, and then there are two, four, six, eight bench spots. So that's more than usual. Um, Scott. Standard standard Yahoo lineup, except for all those bench spots. Yeah, Scott, I mean, you've talked about how you kind of struggle to, I guess, figure out your strategy in terms of this format. And I've told you that I typically like to punt steals. Um, What do you think, though, typically when it comes to just your strategy for a head-to-head categories lineup construction? It's not a... I don't play as much in this format as the other two we talk about, which I think is part of it. I just don't have a large sample to work with because the first few times I played, I treated it like a roto league and it went fine. Still Heath set up that silly for the people league, which is like 16 teams deep and uses a head to head style lineup. And I don't know, I, I, it's possible I'm just overthinking it. And, uh, and that's why I keep having trouble. But I think what you said Hunting on steals makes a lot of sense for this format because, especially this year, because you just have to pay such a premium for them, uh, and and it may not be worth it if you can really make sure you're dominant with your pitching staff and with your, you know, the other hitting categories. 
I look for impact with every lineup spot. So, you know, kind of jack of all trade types like Ozzy Albies, I'm not as interested in when there's fewer lineup spots to balance the categories like there is in a Roto League. Uh, I want guys who are going to make a bigger impact so that, you know, in the week by week, I can trust that there's going to be enough to move me ahead of my opponent in a certain category, if that makes sense. Chris, you are, you oh, are Mr. Head-to-Head Categories. What do you think about... It's my favorite format. What, what's, what do you typically... Do you do anything differently in terms of lineup construction? You need to, you need to have an answer to one question before you can make a call on this. And that is, um, do you get one win every week or do you have 10 potential wins? If you have one win every week, I think punting is a totally viable strategy. I think you can punt saves. I think you could punt steals. I think you could punt batting average. I think you could punt a starting pitcher and just go after, you know, try to win ERA, whip, and saves every week. I, I think... You know, because all you need to do is get over the finish line. If you're if you win five point five to four point five, and you have a tie somewhere, you won the week. It doesn't matter. But that strategy does not work nearly as well if you're talking about ten wins in a given week, uh, because you know, winning five or six categories the whole season, you're probably going to miss the playoffs. And so, in that, I think you should approach it more like a traditional roto. Um, but maybe keep, you know, some specialists on your bench. If you know, you're going up against a team, uh, that did punt stolen bases, sit your stolen base guys, if they're a drain everywhere else. And, um, you know, th- that is, I think the, the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, in terms of the one win versus the 10 category wins. Uh, I've only played in the 10 category wins and I, I still punt steals in that format and have had some success with it. You'll hear some people talk about the marmole strategy as well. That comes mm-hmm. down to whether or not you have an innings limit on yeah. a given week. So um, if you don't, then sure, you can just load up on as many relief pitchers as you want uh, and you won't really compete in wins, but you'll have really good ratios. And assuming some of those relievers are closers, then you'll compete in saves as well. But I, I usually run like a pseudo type of marmol strategy where I have, you know, maybe two uh, starting pitchers I just kind of leave in there all the time. I'll have a few others on the bench where maybe if they have the right matchup, and then I'll have like four or five relievers in my lineup just constantly helping with strikeouts and and ratios. Um, and I would say three out of five of those will be closers. So it's kind of like a marmol strategy, but not entirely. Um, because and, I do. And another thing. I do still Sorry, want to be God. somewhat competitive in wins. So that's why I do usually carry like four or five starting pitchers. Another thing to keep in mind is, and this goes for every format, but I think especially in this one, uh, is it a daily lineups or a weekly lineups? If it's daily lineups, you can even try to punt the rate stats. You can try to punt average uh, ERA and whip and just rack up counting stats if it's a daily lineups league. And uh, you know that's another viable strategy. He also said Frank should go with the nickname Francis. That's a Deadpool reference. Where's Adam, man? Did Adam watch Deadpool? That was like one of the first episodes we oh, did. I don't. Yeah. I never even followed up to find find out if he watched Deadpool or not. Which, come on, top three uh, superhero movie, hands down. No way, fans or butts about it. This next one's from Owen. 
in Virginia. Dear Kurt, Steve, Pete, and unfortunately, Glenn. So I did look this one up. Uh, I did figure out that it was Kurt Schilling. It's a Kurt Schilling it's trade, the, right? It's a Kurt Schilling trade. I had no idea who was an Oriole to start his career. Uh, him and Steve Finley and Pete something, Pete Varnish. Pete maybe? Harnish. Harnish were traded for a guy named Glenn Davis, not the former Boston Celtic. Um, I've never heard of this trade. I imagine it was not good for the Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> well, the thing is, of those three, who was the best for the Astros? Like Harnish, maybe? Uh, Kurt Schelling and Steve Finley weren't that great for the Astros. They went on to greatness later for other teams. Yeah, but Glenn Davis hit 24 home runs in three seasons for the I, Orioles. Yeah, I, I get it. I just 30. I, it, you could maybe blame the Orioles for this trade, but it's hard to credit the Astros if they didn't. Uh, well, you know, Finley was such a good defender. He, his war actually was pretty good. He's kind of, I guess, uh, uh, Ender Inciarte-like for the Astros. Yeah, the, the Jeff Bagwell trade helped the Astros make up for that. Or no, the, the, the Astros... The yeah, Astros they, traded, they out they traded really well. Schilling the next year for to the Phillies for Jason Grimsley in 1992. Not, not what you want. No, don't think so. <laughs> uh, if you're an Astros fan, you do hate to see that. Owen says that he loved the batting stands conversation that we had on the pod last week. Really brought back some good memories of playing backyard ball as a kid. I was surprised that Julio Franco, with a bat looped over his head, was not mentioned. That was one that was tweeted at me a few times. Uh, that was Owen's personal favorite. Do you guys think Anthony Santander or Austin Hayes would be worth a late-round flyer. Bolts showed some promise last year and should get plenty of playing time. Austin Hayes, for me specifically, he helped me win a league last year, and he had a really monster spring. Scott, I remember it must have been three years ago now. I think it was entering the 2017 season. Maybe it was entering uh, 2018. 2018. Yeah, I think it was entering 2018 because it was his 2017 night that where Austin Hayes had a monster yep. season. You were talking him up, and I remember that like it was yesterday. Wow. You were you were listening? Um, yeah, no, that didn't turn out so well. He 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 did. He had a monster year in the minors. It was his first year as a professional. He hit over three hundred with over thirty homers between like three levels, and actually made it to the majors as a twenty-one year old. Uh, but then he had something going on that spring, like a shoulder. He's he's basically been banged up ever since. And played through a lot of those injuries. And the minor league production has just dropped off tremendously. Including last year. He was not very good in the minors. And yet it was sandwiched between an awesome spring against many major leaguers. And an awesome September against entirely major leaguers. So he's, he's really difficult to figure out. I'm not super excited for him. Because... I think you have to start with the numbers and how they haven't been very good in the minors the last two years. But I, I understand there may be a valid excuse for him. And uh, he has shown potential in the past. Those big numbers came with a low strikeout rate too in 2017. I'm not sure I mentioned that. Uh, so I'm keeping an open mind with Hayes. I think there's upside there. I'm not like he goes so late that I think it's low risk. There just tends to be players. I'm more excited about in the same range, like another Austin, Austin Riley. Chris, any love Austin Hayes or Anthony Santander? Is it pronounced like the bank? I, 
I've listened to Oreo's broadcast, and I've wondered this before too. And and they say Santander. Okay, okay. So it is pronounced like the bank. Um, no, I don't have a bank. I've I've only heard of it since I moved to New York. Um, I don't know if I like either of these guys. I think they're like I, I think both could be like useful fifth outfielders, but I think that's kind of somewhat close to the ceiling for both. And that's okay if they get off to a hot start and you add them and and use them, but they're not guys I'm targeting. And also I just want to say, I remember Julio Franco. I only really watched him with the Braves and I imagined he was gigantic because he was super cut and used like a 37 ounce bat. He was only six foot. Yeah. That surprised me. I thought I, I, in my head, he's like Andres Galarraga size. Mm. Julio he, he Franco. actually played. I think he was like a shortstop and a second baseman. Second, second baseman, yeah, yeah. He played all. He played a lot of. He wasn't just exclusively a first baseman. By the way, he's like sixty now, and he's uh, some kind of hitting instructor in Korea. And there was a video circulating of Julio Franco on social media a couple weeks back. He's still using that stance at sixty. <laughs> Love it. Still turning he, it around. He's gonna find he a way played, to play somewhere again. <laughs> he played independent ball seven games when he was 55 and he was yeah. playing he played until he was 48 uh, yeah he was playing majors, professional yeah. baseball until he was 49 uh he played in the mexican league in 2008 love that guy <laughs> that's julio insane. franco legend we need more julio franco get him back get him back in the bigs that'll do it here for today fantasy baseball today on this monday june 1st we'll be back again tomorrow for scott and chris i am frank bye-bye